I want to begin today by asking you a question. And I'm going to ask you a question that we put to our high school students at camp back this summer in Colorado. And here's the question. Why the Bible? Why is there the Bible? Why did God go to the trouble across 14, 15 centuries using and employing 40 different authors, countless scribes and scholars, the authors, some of whom were kings, some were peasants, some were prophets, some were poets, employing different genres like history, prophecy, poetry, letters, wisdom literature, on and on it goes. Why the Bible? And the thinking behind this question this summer was if we can get our students thinking like this, if we can get them living like this, then they're going to be farther ahead of the curve spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, socially, in every way imaginable. And so the question I put to you this morning is, why the Bible? How would you answer that question? Why the Bible? I think it's a really intriguing question. I, I look at that and go, I've never really considered that or thought about it before. But as really intriguing as I think it is, it is in fact really, really important. It's a really, really important question to ponder, to consider, and, and hopefully and prayerfully to answer. I will give you the answer that we gave to our students. This is kind of what we, we said. The purpose of the Bible is this, to reveal God and how to love him with everything we have in everything we do. The Bible reveals God to us. It shows us who God is. It shows us what his character is like. But then it also tells us this is what living in relationship with this God looks like. This is what it looks like to love God with everything you have. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if you're, if you're new to this, it might sound strange to say it is a commandment to love God, a command to love. I'm trying to think about anybody in my life that would walk into my house and command me to love them, that I would say, oh, I can't wait to do that. Think about it. If, you're, if your wife or your spouse or your, or your parents said, I command you, love me, you'd be like, let's dance. I, I don't think so. That just kind of, just we that just instinctively push back against that. But when you remember the fact that God is love, that, that is who he is, and so every single thing that he does, every single thing that he says is an expression of his personality and his character, and it starts with love. You understand that even his commands are given to us as an act of love, as an expression of his amazing grace. So when you live in that reality of 
getting to know God better, of loving God with everything that you have and everything that you do, that's where you begin. That's where I begin to make sense of a messy world. Anybody want to argue the fact that our world is a little messy sometimes? And by sometimes, I mean 24-7. I mean, it is a messy world, but when you live in this reality and live out the reality of loving God with everything that you have in everything that you do, you start to be able to, to make sense. You start to be able to connect the dots and make sense and discern fiction from nonfiction, fantasy from reality. You start to be able to go, oh, I, I understand where that goes. I understand what's happening here. And so you can kind of take a deep breath and start to make sense of the nonsense that passes for normal in our world. That's where we've been throughout this teaching series. Normal is overrated. The, the, the idea that God has created us for more, that he has called us up to more than just normal, more than just average. And throughout this teaching series, we're using the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the biblical historical record of their lives in Babylonian captivity, we're using that as a lens through which we hopefully begin to understand some patterns, some principles, and some practices that help us make sense of a messy world. Now, so far through our study, we have seen Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be incredibly faithful to God. They're there. Living in Babylonian captivity, Babylon was a, a polytheistic world. They, they believed in multiple, myriad gods who acted very capriciously. They would sometimes, sometimes share their power with human beings, sometimes hold it back, but they were, they were capricious over and against the Israelite view that there is one true God who lives in relationship with human beings, who is intimately involved and concerned with human affairs and has called them into covenant relationship with himself. And what's interesting is through Daniel chapter one and chapter two, we have seen them be incredibly blessed and highly rewarded within the Babylonian system for their faithfulness to God. You'll, you'll remember in Daniel chapter one and chapter two, what we've seen so far is they were, they were pulled out of all of the captives in Babylon and and set aside for service in the king's court. They were trained for years in royal protocol. They were chosen as advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar at this time, as the king of Babylon, would have been the most powerful person on the planet. And he chose these four young Israelites to be his advisors. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed as governors over certain regions of Babylon. But in Daniel chapter 3, they hit a crossroads. A crossroads, which another way of saying crossroads is a crisis. It's, a, it's an inflection point where it could go either way. And it was a crossroads of culture where their commitment to God ran into a head-on collision with the culture within which they lived. Here, here's how the Bible describes it. Genesis, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 and then we're going to skip down to verses 4 through 6. This is what the Bible says. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide 
and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, we read that from the comfort of the 21st century, and we think, man, how primitive. He's going to just like build this huge golden statue and set it up out on this great plain and expect everybody to bow down and worship this thing. But I think we need to exercise a little 21st century empathy with the Babylonians of the 7th century B.C. Because keep in mind, they, they viewed the world through a different lens than you and I did. Certainly we have more technology, but, you know, technology and culture changes, but the human heart really doesn't change that much. The, the, the needs of the human heart have been the same since the Garden of Eden until this very moment. The way that we manifest those needs, the way that we satisfy those needs, we have new tools and trinkets and distractions at our disposal. They didn't have then. But we, we understand what it's like to, to worship, to, to, to orient our lives around something other than God. Ralph Waldo Emerson was an American philosopher and, and scholar, and he, he came to some really suspect conclusions as it related to transcendentalism and, and a lot of those other things, but he said something that was so profound that was actually spot on as it relates to the human condition. This is what Emerson wrote about worship. He said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. It will reveal itself. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. You see, Emerson understood a central fact of the human condition. Every single person worships. You worship, I worship, all God's children worship something or someone. The question is, what do you worship? Even the atheist worships. The atheist worships humanity as the center of existence. They, they orient their lives around that. The Christ follower says, no, Jesus is the center of the universe. Jesus is true north, and I will orient my life around that. Some people orient their lives around possessions. Some people orient their lives around pleasure. Some people orient their lives around power or popularity. Man, we, we all want to be liked, don't we? I want to be liked, don't you? Tell your neighbor right now with a smile on your face, I do. I want to be liked. But here's the reality. When you, when you live in that posture of worship that says, I will love God with everything I have in everything I do. It will help make sense of a messy world. It will 
help your life to run better and work better every time, and there will be problems. You're going to have problems when you live your life following Christ. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your neighbor again with a smile on your face and in your heart and tell him, there's going to be problems. There's going to be problems. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithful to God, here find themselves at a crossroads of culture and their commitment. They find themselves on the outside looking in of a legal decree. Is it, a, a, is it capricious? Yes. But it was, when Nebuchadnezzar spoke, it carried the weight of law in Babylon. And so if they don't bow down and worship this golden idol, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, burned alive. That's where they were. You see, we have to understand the weight of our faith. Our faith carries huge implications. C.S. Lewis called it the weight of glory. The weight of glory that when you choose to follow Christ and you bear his name as a follower of Christ, there's a weight, there's a gravity, there's a significance to that. And when you do it long enough, well enough, you will come into conflict with culture. It will happen. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to be rude about it. You don't have to be a jerk. As a matter of fact, please don't be a jerk. Don't be the weird Christian in the room. And as I've said before, if you are, don't tell anybody you go to church here. The night before I left for college, I was coming to the University of Texas, had grown up in Houston. I was, I was kind of finishing up, packing, stuffing everything into the back of my car. And my mom came into my room and she sat down on the edge of the bed and she said, I just want to tell you something. I'm like, oh my gosh, what now? That was my original thought. I'm just telling you. She said, I'm really excited for you. She goes, but one thing I want you to remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Now, I have to tell you, in that moment, I thought, what? I didn't say that out loud. That's what I thought to myself. But in the ensuing years since, I thought over and over and over again about the wisdom of that counsel. To remember who you are as a child of God. Remember who you are, where you come from. Remember what you've been called to. Remember who you are. This is actually what we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing exactly in this moment at this, at this crossroads. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage when they wouldn't bow down to this idol that he had erected. He flew into a rage and he summoned them into his court. And he said, essentially, I'm gonna give you one more try. One more try. You know what he was doing? This was the royal version of the parent who goes, one, 
two, two and a half. Have you, we've, uh, listen, it's a terrible idea as a parent and it's a really terrible idea as a king. Look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded. They replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But, but, everybody right now, say but. This is a big but. But, even if he doesn't, we wanna make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Here's, here's the first thing that you see. You remember who you are when you remember your convictions. Remember your convictions. These are the, these are the non-negotiables of our faith. These are the hills that you will, in fact, die on. They said, listen, your majesty, they, again, they were respectful. They weren't rude, they weren't jerks, but neither were they gonna bow the knee to an idol. They said, no, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't choose to do it this time, we're not bowing the knee. They remembered their convictions, their beliefs, which means they knew what they were. They didn't wait for that moment to start studying the Bible. They knew what they were before they were called to account. They stayed knew the word of God. They studied the word of God and they remembered their convictions, what they believed. And they said, we are not bowing the knee to any idol. Here's what's interesting about idols. In the Old Testament, there are three that chronically rear their ugly heads throughout the biblical narrative. There is the God of Mammon. There is the goddess Asherah, and there is the God of Baal. I'm all obviously using this little g God. The God of Mammon would be the God of possessions and material things. This would be the God of greed. This is what Jesus referred to when he said, you cannot serve both God and Mammon. Mammon is the God of our possessions, our things. Asherah was a fertility goddess, a fertility goddess that included included worship prostitution. The Asherah pole that was erected in many communities as a place of worship had a very, very sexual connotation and message to it, Asherah. Then the God of Baal was the God of power. The God of power that Israel routinely slipped into the worship of throughout their history. Now watch this. So you've got Mammon, the god of materialism, Asherah, a sex goddess, goddess of fertility, and Baal, the god of power. Money, sex, and power. Money, sex, power. Power, sex, money. Aren't you glad we're past those problems now? These are the same problems that have plagued humanity since Genesis chapter three. There is nothing new under the sun. This is why marriage is such a monster value in the biblical 
belief system, in, in a biblical picture of the world. Be, because husband and wife, man and woman, male and female, both carry the image of God. That's why God looked in before he created Eve and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> Somebody, help me preach. It's not good for the man to be alone. So he created a completer. He, he created, he fashioned Eve out of a rib, not from a foot to be trampled on, not from a head to rule over the man, but from a rib to walk beside a man to bear the image of God. Marriage is a sacred divinely given gift. That's why God says, I want you to protect the gift of your sex drive and sexuality and sexual identity in the context of covenant marriage. One man, one woman, one life. Don't settle for the lies that lead us to anything else. That's the end result of that idolatry. And so all of these things are wrapped up in this, and these are the convictions that they were sticking to. They, they remembered their convictions. They said, we're not doing it. We're not bowing the knee. Daniel 3, 21 through 23. So far, it's just been a conversation. Check this out. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Now, there's convictions Remember those convictions. But at some point, you're going to have to remember your commitment. You remember your commitment to Christ. The, the moment a person comes to faith in Christ, they step over that line of faith, of trust. That's a commitment rooted in convictions. The conviction is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, for you. He became my sin and your sin. And he paid the penalty that rightly belongs to all of us. And then he died, but he rose again on the third day. That's the conviction. And because of that conviction, we make a commitment to follow him. We will follow you through the fires. We will follow you no matter what. When I was in high school, I played on a, I played a, on a basketball team, and, and everybody on the team knew that I was a, a Christian, I invited as many guys to church as I could, you know, regularly. Sometimes they would go, sometimes they wouldn't. And I will never forget sitting in Mrs. Rack's world history class one day. Ms. Rack left the room. And a group of, I, I, this was a, a class that I had with like seven or eight other guys on the team. And I was over there, I'm sure, studying very hard. And they were over here just kind of shooting the breeze, as guys do. And, they, and I could kind of hear out of the corner of my ear, they were talking about girls. And they were, they were talking about Girls like guys talk about girls who are not committed to Christ. And all of a sudden, one of them stood up out of this circle. And he goes, hey, Matt, you a virgin? Yeah, you're, you're nervous now. Think about how I felt. 
And I looked back over him and I said, yes. I go, yeah, I am. They started laughing, making fun. But I remember that as vividly as I'm standing here right now. That commitment to follow Christ no matter what, no matter the mockery, no matter the ridicule, no matter the persecution, no matter what. And I haven't, I haven't handled that perfectly every time, but at least once in 11th grade, I did okay. But I remember that so vividly, having to step up and remember that commitment and staying true to what I knew to be true and right and good. You have to remember that commitment. And, and, and here's what I love. Here's what I love about God's grace in giving us this story biblically. Daniel chapter three, verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar goes down to check out the furnace. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Now, biblical scholars are divided on who the fourth character in the flames was. Some believe, according to the Hebrew manuscripts, that it was actually the person of Jesus Christ accompanying them through the fires. Others believe that it was an an angel, a messenger from God accompanying them. It's, it's not clear who it was, but what is clear is that they were not walking through the flames alone. So it's one thing to remember your convictions. It's another to remember your commitment even when you're being thrown into the fire. But how much more powerful to remember your companion, to remember the one who walks with you, the God who will never say never. Now say never like you mean it. Never. Never leave you for, nor forsake you. No matter what. No power in heaven. No power on earth. Shipwreck, disease, illness. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus is our companion. Even through the fires that test our faith. The fires that forge our faith. There were four characters walking through the flames. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Just, just for a second, I want you to notice. Nebuchadnezzar makes a profound profession here. He looks in and he says, you three, you are servants of the most high God. See, prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the most high little g-god. But because of their witness, because of their testimony, because of their faith, he now knows who God is. Now, we don't, we don't really know whether or not Nebuchadnezzar 
made it to heaven or not, but this is a profound moment. Then the high officers, the officials, the governors and the advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. This is so powerful. When you walk with Christ, even through the fire, first of all, did you notice what it said? They came out of the fire. There is no fire that is permanent when you walk with Christ. Not one. Whatever fire you may be walking through right now, whatever test, whatever struggle, challenge, hurt, grief, it's temporary. It's temporary. It may hurt so deeply and profoundly. I'm not minimizing the pain, but I do think this calls us to step back and look at it with some perspective. You see, our worship of God allows us to put into perspective the pain and the struggle that we fight. Our worship causes us to step back and go, yeah, it hurts. I'm not going to deny anything. This isn't, this isn't la-la land. This is real world. But I know that I will come out on the other side. And it says that all of the, all of the officials gathered around them and they, they hadn't even singed their clothes, not even the hairs on their head. I remember one time I was grilling and I closed the grill and I closed the vents to kind of bring the fire down a little bit. And, and I closed it, closed them off. And then I opened it back up, opened the lid up. And when all of that air rushed in, this fireball shot out at me, took off my eyebrows. I don't know if it was the fireball or my life. Something flashed before my eyes. But I was singed. I smelled of smoke. When you walk with Christ and you come out of your fire, because of him and his healing and his sufficiency and his grace and his love, you don't even smell a smoke anymore. But you got to remember the companion. Convictions are important. Commitments really matter. But it's that companionship, that relationship with Jesus that carries us through, that, that brings us out of the fire and allows us to live the life that is truly life. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can even redeem the flames themselves. Whatever hurt you've walked through, whatever pain you're in right now, whatever fire you may be walking through, he can use even that for his glory and for your good. That's how good he is. 
That's how much he loves you. That's how powerful he is. That is why we have faith in the fire. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship, whether you're in the room or you're online, we want to give you the opportunity to begin that, to begin to walk in a relationship with Christ. Just, if that's you, pray right where you are, just silently say something like this, from your heart to God's, say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, all of it. So that I can accept, I can receive your grace and your forgiveness, all of it. Lord, in exchange for your life, for me, I give you my life. And I will follow you in commitment and conviction as your companion. I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you to just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. If that was your prayer and you meant it, then this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help with the moments that follow. When we dismiss in just a couple of minutes, if you would, there's a place out in the lobby, we call it the hub. We'd love to give you a gift, just a new believer's kit. There's a Bible and a reading plan to help you get to know your companion Jesus, to get to know what it's like to live in relationship with him, just to begin this. We'd love to give that to you in just a moment. But as our heads are bowed for another second, if that was your prayer, would you raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a second and know that as a church, we honor that and celebrate it with you. And our family tradition around here is you put your hands down as we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.